Hey, hey, I don't have my phone today, do I? Yes, I do. Look at this, Wednesday, December 30th, 2015. This is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. It's the last one of the year, no less. How about that? Thank you so much for joining me. Um, you know what? There's a lot to get to and a lot of fun stuff to get to. This, one, this one's not going to be too intense, but it'll be, it'll be really good. Um, so today on the program, we will talk about, let's see, um, UFC 195 is Saturday. That's crazy. Uh, Ryzen is, or Risen, however you want to pronounce it, is currently ongoing, which has had some interesting results, some ghoulish ones too. If you saw that Aoki versus Sakuraba fight, God, what was that? Jesus Christ. But um, okay, there's a lot of good stuff to get to. Um, uh, discussions about what happened with MMA in 2015, what we can look forward to next in 2016. Bold predictions. I try not to get into too many of those because I don't think they're very useful in any capacity, but neither are predictions, and we do those anyway. So, um, happy to have you. Thank you so much for joining me. This last one of the year, how crazy is this? The years, I feel like 2015 just whew, flew by, man. You know, everyone says that every year. I, I didn't feel that way for 2012, um, 20, 2013, certainly not. 2014, maybe, but 2015, definitely. Is it skipping a little bit? A little bit. Not too bad. Um, okay, so best place to comment, of course, on MMAfighting.com. Uh, comments that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. You can tweet me at SBN Luke Thomas. So thank you for that as well. Please contribute if you haven't already. Uh, as you know, no Barbas today. He's downstairs. My wife is here. I've got Colombian in-laws in town. So if you hear people singing in Spanish in the background, that's them. Um, there are seriously, there's like, I'm outnumbered like six to one in the house. Anyway, uh. You know what time it is. I tried to find something more exotic for the last chat of the of the week, but I ran out of time. The workload's not been crazy this week, but with the family and everything, it's just been a little bit hectic. All right. Cheers. Salud. Pariba, pa bajo. El centro, pa dentro. All right. Let's do this, gang. Let's see. First question on MMA fighting. UFC 195 picks. Who are you favoring in the main and co-main event? My picks don't come out, I think, until Friday. Um, I don't know that I want to spoil them right this moment. Here's what I would say. Um, I think that, and the odds reflect this. I think a pick for Carlos Condit is justified. I think a pick of Robbie Lawler is also justified. This is a very, very tight contest. Again, we could have a Jose Aldo, Conor McGregor scenario where one punch sleeps him. But um, all things being equal, I expect this to go long, long-ish, three rounds or more. And um, I think that you can make a very credible case for either guy. I really can. Truly, truly, 100% mean that. Uh, and Miocic versus Arlovsky, um, I think it's a little more clear-cut, but I've been so wrong about... I mean, 2015, like, there's a few things I'm very proud that I got right. 2015, there's a few things I'm ashamed I got wrong. 2015 and 2014, too. Um, just never saw the rise of Arlovsky, so I have a bit of a mental blind spot, I think, when it comes to properly evaluating him. And I'm not really sure why, but I, I just do. Um... In fact, here's someone who makes that point exactly. And this is this is them talking. I'm saying at the moment because my pick could and might change during fight week, but with the recent success of Jackson Wink, it makes me think Arlovsky is going to come into the fight 100% prepared 
for everything Stipe has to offer. I think the fight will be decided on whether Miocic can secure the takedown. If not, Arlovsky will eat Miocic up on the feet. In a three-round fight, I take Arlovsky, five-round Miocic all day. By the way, clear-cut number one contender fight, no debate. Certainly agree with the last part about that. Um, would definitely like to see the winner get a shot at the title. As for the rest of that, I think it's an interesting comment. You know, can Miocic get the takedown? Arlovsky usually has lights-out takedown defense, especially as of late, but Miocic, I think, could probably secure a couple of them. The question is, can he really hold on to them? He likes to get them a little bit. I mean, he can do single legs, but you never see him go for single legs out in open space like Chris Weidman. He tends to do a little bit more as a secondary option off a failed double or something else off the fence. So he'll he'll, he'll single leg him away from the fence, but um, it's not it's not usually his first order of priority, I don't think. I may have to double-check that, but that's not my sense of things. But the success of Jackson Wink is really sort of key to this, and I guess I'll lead to the next question here because I see it below. Um, you know, if you heard my interview with Brandon Gibson, he basically talks about the transformation of Alistair Overeem from a Dutch style, a Thai style, that has a lot of benefits, but a lot of things that just don't work for MMA anymore uh, at the elite elite level anyway. Um, and they were trying to shed some of that and add in some new elements to his game, you know, where he basically fakes one way, bobs over on the inside slip and then comes over in. Uh, that's how he finished Junior Dos Santos. If you saw he fakes this way and then rolls under and then comes over and then hits him with the left, an inside slip, uh, a very nice maneuver. And then you can see as he goes this way, the jab comes past, rolls, and then bangs him out. Um, you know, I'm not sure these are things he necessarily would have done that way, the Thai boxing style. It's getting close. You know, he made some decent use of his kicking range, but big heavy knees, uppercuts, overhand rights to an extent, overhand lefts too, depending on he would change stances. Anyway, long story short, there's just a little bit they had to take out and something they had to add back in for different MMA purposes. And I really feel like it's showing, man. I really feel like it's showing. Uh, and that's something I had not properly taken seriously. So I was wrong on Overeem, and I was wrong on Arlovsky. You know, maybe it's worth giving those guys a, 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 a very fair and maybe a second look if you're like me and you're kind of doubting them a little bit. I'm not telling you to change your prediction or how you feel about them, but, you know, there's certainly something going on there. Um, so then let's get right into this question here. Questions related to the Gibson interview. Um, thanks for the interview with Gibson. Glad you liked it. Got a lot of positive feedback on it, so thanks for that. Uh, number one, just like BJJ and MMA took off because of Hoist, how much do you think Muay Thai Dutch kickboxing became prevalent because of the first striker of sorts to win a UFC tournament was Marco Huas? Um, yeah, certainly there's that, you know, and, that, and then Luta Livre incorporating some of that. I just feel like um, the prevalent style of kickboxing that had been made use of early um, – and also there's, you know, Pat Smith, too. You can't forget Pat Smith. Pat Smith, Pat Smith didn't win, I don't think, in the same way that that um, Marco Huas did. But nevertheless, had a pretty big impact, especially with that Coleman win. But I just think more than that, if it, it just – I'm not sure about the origins of it. Um, the Dutch picked it up first. The Dutch popularized it. We had seen a lot of um, use of it in K1 to an extent, a, a little bit different, obviously. Um, it's not pure tie striking. Um, in fact, there's, there's a number of differences, and Glory is even further a departure from that. A lot of people call Glory Muay Thai. Glory is not Muay Thai, not not at all. You have seen guys from Muay Thai do well in it, but it's not Muay Thai. Um, 
it, the question is, how did Muay Thai become so popular that it became the fallback option for gyms across the country? If you go to gyms everywhere now, what do they all say? Oh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Muay Thai striking, wrestling, and maybe there's some mix of something else, you know, CrossFit or Krav Maga or, you know, whatever. They always mix some other stuff in there to sell to a, a, a broad range of clientele. It's not exactly clear to me how um, uh, Muay Thai became the popular option there, but once it did, it sort of took hold and took root. I think it certainly had origins in Brazil. I think it had been popular there for some time. Um, it had been, you know, of varying degrees of success in the United States um, prior to UFC. Um, but somehow, some way, it certainly became popularized under the gun, but never in the same way that, um, you know, jiu kind of just took off in that way. It had a name behind it too. You know, people still come up and ask me about Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, not realizing that that's just sort of one version of it. Not they think it's the version of it. So um, that it's a good it's a question for some more research. Certainly, guys like Marco Hulas contributed to it. Guys like Pedro Hizo contributed to it. You know, I think when they showed the value of leg kicks, um, you know, when they showed the the value of clinching, it sort of really began to say, "Wow, this is a you know, in theory, in Muay Thai, you can strike with your hands, you can strike with your um, feet or shins." You can strike, and you feet too with a, a teeth kick. They call the the what was it the, the 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 art of eight weapons: two hands, two elbows, two knees, two shins slash feet, right? And so I think they just thought if you add in, look, look how many weapons you have with it. Not just weapons at range, but now inside you got this clinch. Um, it just became the dominant style of striking. But what you're really seeing now is, man, it's just not enough. And I was it was so interesting to me when he said this because. It was like this eureka moment. I hadn't, I couldn't quite piece it all together. And then he, you know, I knew that I knew that Thai boxing had waned in value a little bit. But basically, the argument that he makes, he doesn't say this exactly, but basically, the argument that he makes is like if you're just training Muay Thai for striking for MMA, you're basically training an antiquated style. That's the long and short of it, and that's a real big problem. Because if you think about it, look, if you're Carlos Condit, you have access to someone who understands this and has the ability as a coach or a training partner or training staff to fill in the gaps about what you may need, to change some of the things. Another point he mentioned, I had brought it up, I wasn't sure if it was true, and he basically argued that it was, and you see things like Carlos Condit being a short range, going for a punch, and then switching over and coming with the elbow, and drilling Tiago Alves. The, he's changing the idea of what weapons work at what ranges. So you, you have a certain sense about these, I have to worry about these things at this range, these things at this range, and then these things at this range. And that debate goes out the window when you can change all that up. Um, or at least it makes it very much more complicated. So he's, he's dealing with things like that. In other words, if you're Carlos Conde, you have access to all these different things that can help complement your games in the way you want. I'm telling you, man, if you drive to any gym in the country right now, Virtually all of them are going to say Muay Thai striking. Virtually all of them. And in jiu-jitsu, they all say Brazilian jiu-jitsu too, but that may just be a label to get someone in the door because they have heard that. As it's noted in the article, you know, a great point I thought Brandy Gibson made was just how collaborative jiu-jitsu is as a community. People put best practices out on YouTube all the time, or you can pay for you know, Marcelo Garcia in action and get all his different techniques and all these guys cross train. Eddie Bravo is a huge fan of Marcelo Garcia. 
Marcelo Garcia lost to Robert Drysdale. You can get on Robert Drysdale's platform or Art of Jiu-Jitsu. And all these guys have all these different things in their seminars, and everyone's coming over. Just in the past year, we've had Clark Gracie come to our school. We've had Gary Tonin. One was Gi, one was No Gi, one was Heel Hooks, one was, you know, Omoplatas and Daily Heel Guard. And there's a lot of just, you know, sharing of best practices that striking doesn't. And if you're a guy who trains in, I don't know, Memphis, Tennessee, and train at a gym that's good enough about to put out a regional level fighter, you know, maybe a UFC level fighter at a low end. What are you going to do to get the striking you need? Uh, it is not clear to me. It is not clear to me what the answer is. I'm not saying that they won't or that they can't. I'm simply telling you as I speak to you now, it's a huge problem um, for those guys at that level. And, you know, you could say, well, some of those guys can go train at Jackson Wink or AKA or whoever's at the cutting edge of these sorts of things. I mean, they only have so much space. It's all finite. So those guys are going to have to buckle down. They're going to have to bring in some trainers to do other things. They're going to have to start watching tape. They're going to have to look at what people are doing in the UFC and start mimicking it. And they're going to have to get away from these old Muay Thai systems. If you're going in there and your instructor is leaning on his back leg and then bouncing his front foot like you see a lot of these Thai guys do in style. There's not a lot of movement, not a lot of head movement, not a lot of movement generally. And they kind of just, you know, take turns blasting each other um, until one person falls, you know, or slips up in some way. Um, that's going away, man. That's going away. And if you want to be at the front of it, you got to realize, take some things from Muay Thai, but you need a lot of other stuff. If you want, if you really have designs on being a championship level fighter, uh, you know, unless you're wrestling in jiu-jitsu is simply otherworldly, you better start figuring something out. It's crazy. Uh, okay. Had boxing become the go-to striking base for MMA, do you think MMA striking would be at a higher level today? Not necessarily in terms of the weapons, but rather in terms of the intangibles, timing, distance, and overall finesse. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I... Part of me feels like Muay Thai's ascension as this dominant model of striking is not accidental because of what I just mentioned, that you take that style and in particular sort of the Dutch twists on it and you get these really heavy leg kicks and big punches. That's really effective in MMA, right? Even still, it's still effective. It's going away, but it's still effective, right? This is a sport where you have tiny gloves and if you can just bite down the mouthpiece and squeeze one out, even if you're taking a shot to the jaw, if you have a big punch, you could put someone away. It doesn't take a whole lot. So this was this powerful style of force overwhelming. And I think that was very appealing to people. And it, you know, broadened the horizons about two fists, two elbows, two knees, two feet slash shin. Um, it, it really, you know, it caters to MMA in that way. Um, but um, if you had just focused on movement first and, you know, trying to find what punches work at what range, it just seems much more guess and check. To me, it seems very natural now that guys understand how um, to launch combinations and they understand the power punching has real strong value in MMA, even more so than boxing. It seems to me that next level, the natural, logical next level, is the things like movement. And not Conor McGregor movement, but I mean, think of this, for example. I was, I was talking with... Uh, uh, Brian Stan this week, I have an interview on my radio show coming out. I, I recorded it early and I made a point to him. And um, if you go to, okay, so we have two gyms, we have a bunch of gyms in, in DC uh, and a lot of good MMA gyms. Um, and there was one really high level boxing gym. It's called the Headbangers Gym. It's where Lamont and Anthony Peterson train out of. Lamont Peterson, um, however controversially, 
you know, beat Amir Khan. This is a, you know, whatever you want to say about him, he's a high-level boxer, right? You go in there, and I've, I've watched Lamont train any number of times. You ever seen those boxing gyms where they'll put rope and they'll tie it and they'll make guys go under it all the way and then switch angles and go under it all the way? You ever seen that? So the rope is here like this, and they have to go under it back and forth all the way. I've only ever seen that at super high-level MMA gyms. Your average MMA gym that you go to, even ones that may have you know some good wrestling or some good jiu-jitsu or even some decent striking, to be honest, I've almost never seen that. I mean, think about that. That is a fundamental training exercise to improve your balance, your movement, your, you know, your ring awareness, your ring savvy, uh, everything, everything. Uh, how to balance your weight in motion, how to throw punches, um, how to duck, how to just build a core set of movement. And you see none of that in MMA gyms for the most part. None of that because they're just not ready for that. And that takes a long time to get good at. You go train in a boxing gym. Those things are kind of fundamental. Throwing punches comes after that. Boxing is very much about balance, breathing, fluid movement, understanding of range, understanding of um, angles, um, you know, to varying degrees of success, of course. But this is why when people genuflect before Mayweather, you know, you can say whatever you want about him being boring. But if we're talking about guys who understand spacing and movement and angles, and timing, dude, he's a freaking genius. He is, our, he is, you know, for our generation, borderline peerless, right? You know, I think his record is a little bit manufactured personally, but he is superb at that kind of thing. But he also is offensively muted. And I think that sort of shows you if that had come first, I don't know that MMA striking would would be as successful as it is today or as good as it is today. I really believe like guys understanding the power and ferocity that you can generate with Muay Thai or you know Dutch style kickboxing had to come first. And now we're tapering back some of that ferocity for things like balance and movement and understanding of spacing and angles and everything else like that. It's harder. It's a much more complicated task. Uh, but I feel like now the elite strikers are ready for it. They mentally understand this is what has to happen for me to beat those guys who just want to come in with that tie style and bite down the mouthpiece, you know, and slam their shin into your leg and then, you know, maybe not move around so much. And then lastly, Gibson's flaw. Gibson mentioned that Rousey's flaws were because she showed focus on traditional boxing. Do you agree with him? Um, I, I wanted to explore that that more. I didn't get a chance to do so, so I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that. To me, traditional or not, uh, Rousey's boxing was flawed because she seems to have been trained top-down. She learned how to punch before she learned how to move. Most people in MMA do. M moving is hard. Punching is easy. I mean, it's not easy. Getting a jab, finely tuned, is actually kind of difficult. But I just mean, you know, hitting a bag and hitting it with force, not all that hard. Good, good technique takes a while. But, you know, just putting a glove on and banging it out, it's not that hard to do, right? Uh, learning how to move and balance and breathe and jab. And everything else, that takes a while, you know, and she doesn't have a while. This is what I'm talking about when she's like, I'm going to go back and shoot two movies and then fight home again. What? I don't understand that at all. I mean, I guess Lorenzo Fertitta said it, but, you know, if that's true, that just seems to me a disaster waiting to happen. Um, breakfast with Fedor event. Fedor versus Jaideep Singh. Um, Crone Gracie versus Asen Yamamoto. I, I want to see how Crone looks. 
Crone will probably do his jiu-jitsu thing, but I like his jiu-jitsu. Uh, Kaido Huvelson versus Jerome LeBanner. Is that fight even still on? Uh, Nakashima versus Sauer should be fun. Uh, Gabby Garcia versus Drawn. This should be interesting. Uh, Su Chul Kim versus uh, Linares. Hasegawa versus War. Hasegawa versus War should be crazy but fun. Um, and let's see. Then you have the heavyweight tournament semis, which I think Mo should take all of it. So, look, I think it's a fun card. I don't think it's particularly amazing, but I don't think it's bad. Silva versus Bisping. Who you got? Man, do I love this fight so much. I love that Michael Bisping is taking it to him about the PED use. Uh, unabashedly so, and you might say he's doing that to his detriment, that Anderson Silva's going to start from Ford. Eh, maybe he does, you know what? But you can't let him off the hook, right? If you're Michael Bisping, you're thinking to yourself, what do I do? Do I not say anything and just, you know, talk about the fact that he looked a certain way against Diaz or a certain way in other fights, and I'm going to fight my fight again? Is that what you're going to talk about? Are you going to talk about something that your career has been affected and we now have evidence that at least to some extent this guy was using things that have negatively impacted your career because your opponents have been consuming it. You're not going to say anything about that. Of course you are. You know, you're not going to let this guy slide. You're not going to be deferential to him. Like he's, you know, uh, royalty from a visiting country. No, no, you're going to take it to him. You're going to take it to him. You're not going to be deferential at all. So that's the first thing that I like. The second part I like about it is that, um, I think it's such a huge fight for Michael Bisping's career because if he loses, you know what? He lost to Anderson Silva. Like, I, I don't know that this is no lose situation for him. I do feel like if he lost folks would say, you see, even, even a old Silva in the USADA era, Michael Bisping couldn't beat that guy. There's a reason why he never got a title shot. Okay. That might be true. But if he goes and he beats Anderson Silva, I am not saying this in any way validates everything he had to say about why certain opportunities didn't come his way, but it is, in, it is inordinately redemptive, is it not? Right? You got a guy who has come very close in his career, but never far enough. He beats the guy that went so far we couldn't even believe it, and then has kind of fell on darker times recently. Uh, Michael Bisping's never lost in the UK. This would be validation to say, you know what? Um, you can say what you want about this version of Silva, but when it counted, when he had to do it against me, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it in the UK. He couldn't do it against me. He couldn't do it uh, on these terms. And some of those terms are the fact that he's naturally a lot older now. But I just love how I love the redemptive possibility for this fight. If Michael Bisping goes out and stops Anderson Silva, to me, it's almost it's not irrelevant that he never you know fought or won a title, fought for or won a title. But it is it is pretty damn close. It is pretty damn close. It kind of makes it kind of validates. Some of the things Bisping has said, some of the things that he has suffered through um, throughout the course of his career. I love this fight. And you know what? If Silva goes out there and wins and bangs him out and stops him, you know, he's back to being a contender again in ways that I wasn't sure where it was ever possible. So um, I love this fight. I absolutely love everything about this fight. I really love it more for Michael Bisping than I do for Anderson Silva, but I have very little bad to say about it. I really, really enjoy it. And to that end, Folks are saying, why is this on Fight Pass? I love that it's on Fight Pass. Are you kidding me? I think it's great that it's on Fight Pass. What is Fight Pass supposed to be? An expensive version of what Facebook used to be? I don't want that. I don't want that. If you've already lost hope in Fight Pass, that's fine. I'm not here to talk you back. I mean, it's up to the UFC to sell you on it. I'm just saying, as a Fight Pass customer, I think my wife is a Fight Pass customer. Um, 
this is great. This is what you want at a fight pass. You want big fights on this. Now, you might be saying, well, Luke, wouldn't that pull from other events? Well, that's for the UFC to figure out. That's for the UFC to figure out. And I want to make sure they figure out you can't have too many events. And they dialed them back this year. You see, they had almost like a third the number of UFC debuts this year as opposed to last year. There was well over 200 plus in 2014. There was less than 100 in 2015. That's exactly how it's supposed to be. Kevin Souza uh, finished his contract, had a winning record, I think some post-fight bonuses, and can't get back on because they don't have room. That's how it should be. Less is more. So I don't know what they're going to do about the number of events and how they're going to figure all this out. We'll see how that goes. But in terms of giving value to Fight Pass customers, this is what I want. And especially true because you can't trust Fox Sports 1 to use an event properly. They're just going to drag it out until you can't tolerate it anymore. Fight Pass is going to zip, baby. I'm all in favor. You mean I get to watch Silva versus Bisping on my laptop or Chromecast or whatever? I get to do it in the middle of the afternoon? And I don't have to worry about a bevy of inordinate, you know, uh, amount of commercials. Sign me up. I'm, I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Aljamain Sterling versus Thomas Almeida. Who wins and how? You know, at this stage in their careers, I would have to give it to Almeida. Um, I think his takedown defense is not necessarily all that great. But his scrambling ability, once he gets taken down, is really good. And I will say the longer that fight goes, the more it favors Sterling. In a couple of years, Sterling might be too much for him. Maybe Sterling's too much for him now. But right now, I think there's a little bit too much ferocity going on with Thomas Almeida for me to look past that. Uh, UFC will put in a record $600 million according to Lorenzo Fertitta for 2015. Uh, he said that on CNN Money. Um, it's the best figure in promotional history for a single calendar year. About a year ago, there seemed to be a real concern from the MMAB panel about the UFC lacking in star power and how the old guards such as Anderson, GSP, Liddell were going away. It's safe to say we are past that point. We are certainly past the point where you can say comfortably Ronda Rousey has ascended. Conor McGregor has certainly ascended. John Jones is coming back and could be potentially bigger and better than ever. Maybe his best days are ahead. Uh, I think that's a, a, a logical claim you could make. Um, certainly, they had a great turnaround in 2015. I think they just got – I've mentioned this before. They did a lot of things right. They cut away a lot of the fat. Um, they tried to stack cards as much as possible. They had a little bit better luck as a consequence. Not a bunch of luck, but better. Um, but to me, I would never want to get in a scenario where you get too comfortable. In other words, well, we've arrived in this new paradigm, and this new paradigm is basically without risk of going away. Anything can change in an instant, I think would be my, my, my point to you. So it was a great year for the sport. It was certainly a great year for UFC. I find it very curious that they're mentioning they make this kind of money while they're in the middle of an antitrust lawsuit, but that is a separate matter. Um, but they had a great year. They did a lot right. They got better as promoters. They invested in returning to their show in ways they hadn't done before and making sure the product was as high of a quality as it could be in ways they hadn't done previously in previous years. Um, but you never want to get to a point where you say, ah, well, this new paradigm has crystallized. We are, we have arrived. You have arrived. Your, your, your arrival is always so very temporary. Um, you know, there's not a lot of, I mean, the fact that they're doing back-to-back pay-per-views of a million is insane and such an achievement and deserves to be noted as such, but these are not conditions held in permanent, 
status, stasis. These are things that have to be constantly manicured, constantly groomed, and constantly built and protected. So good year. Lots of reasons for optimism for 2016. Just never want to get to a point where you say, all our troubles are behind us. Uh, Many of the concerns that we had aren't relevant in uh, the current context, but in what underlies them. This is why everyone focuses on what TV ratings are doing and what business is doing and what live gates are doing and what pay-per-view receipts are doing. MMA is never too far from the ground. This is not like football, which also has its own issues, but routinely does 20, 30 million a game on Sunday nights where kids play it from toddlers on up. There's just this embedded rootedness to other sports that MMA does not have. So it's always worth monitoring and mentioning and manicuring your product to make sure it stays at a high level. It has achieved as such, but it will not stay there by itself. There are rumors surrounding 197 about Holm and Tate headlining in Washington State with Mighty Mouse Cejudo as the co-main. I believe our own Dave Meltzer tweeted that. Assuming this winds up happening, do you think it's a good idea? What do you think the buy rate would wind up being? Could it be interesting to see what Holmes' buy rate is after beating uh, Ronda Rousey? And I like this fight if they make it. Holmes versus Tate is a tough fight. I don't think Tate is out of this fight by any stretch of the imagination. Holmes got a bigger name than she used to, but we don't really know. This is the first time she'll be headlining a pay-per-view as the champion, as the attraction. And the fact that Tate is on there, I think, is great, too. Um, somebody that people know from the wars, or the fights, anyway, with, with Ronda Rousey. So I like that as a headliner. Um, you know, Mighty Mouse being from the uh, Washington State area against Cejudo. Cejudo doesn't, doesn't have to worry about boycotting Las Vegas. So that's good for him. Um, yeah, I think it's good. I don't know if it has a super high buy rate or not. It's really going to be hard to tell. What's interesting to me about, like, uh, home, again, this is very... I'm going to be very careful about what it means. But I remember before the fight with Ronda Rousey, Holm was like, had like 80,000 likes on Facebook. She's close to like 2 million now. Let me see how many she has. She has an outrageous number. Let's see. Old Holly. She has, no, I, I exaggerated a little bit. She has 1.344 million, basically. Pretty crazy to go from 80,000 to that in a month. So it's hard to understand exactly where her popularity lies. I like the call if they do it. Um, I it, It'll certainly do better probably than what Mighty Mouse would generate as the headliner. Um, I like the fight. Amisha Tate herself is a popular attraction. As well, so again, I, I, you know, four or five hundred thousand pay per view buys, maybe more, maybe less. Really hard to get a good sense about it, but I think it's a smart call. I think it's a it's a daring call, and uh, I like it, I like it a lot. Is Poirier versus Duffy higher on your anticipation list than Lawler versus Condit and Miocic versus Arlovsky? Uh, it is not. It is not. I think to some extent, um, with the success of Conor McGregor, maybe you didn't feel this way. For me, there was a moment in time where, again, everyone knew Conor McGregor was good. I just didn't know how good. I'm a big believer in Duffy. Um, and I kind of thought there may have been a chance where, not a chance exactly, but there could have been a moment where um, Conor McGregor was always going to be the bigger star. But I just wondered, you know, to what extent does Duffy have championship potential? And I still don't know the answer to that. And if you can't be Poirier, then, you know, we don't know, but um, 
I just sort of wondered what the real future held for both. But now that McGregor has, you know, affirmatively answered the question about his skill level um, and his success, this to me has very different stakes and very different implications. This is just me personally talking. I'm not talking about um, the sport uh, more widely. Still a highly entertaining fight. Still super valuable. Duffy could end up being as good as I think he is. And a rematch with McGregor seems um, to be a dream come true. So we'll see what happens. But with Lawler versus Condit, for me, um, there is absolute and total uncertainty there. Because I truly believe that unless Lawler wrestles with him, I don't think he can beat him. Condit's chin is way too much. Condit is a bit of a slow starter, but he is a big burner in the third and fourth round. Um, fifth, I'm not exactly sure what his numbers look like, but... Um, in the mid to later part of a fight, he can turn it up on you in a very, very devastating way. Um, his wrestling has a constant liability, and Lawler's wrestling is good enough should he choose to use it. But I wonder if he'll be a little too hesitant to use it uh, as much as he should. I think it just a striking battle. I like Conda's chances a lot. I think he takes a better shot than Lawler, and I think he um, is a slow starter relative to Lawler but is a much better in the middle ending stretches. Once he begins to make some adjustments and get comfortable, he'll tear you to pieces. So that one to me is there's real uncertainty. And you say, oh, well, Lawler can do this and Lawler can do that. I think Lawler can beat GSP much easier than he can beat Condit, which is a strange thing to think about, but I think it's true because of the style matchups. And I think Lawler beats Hendricks again if they compete, again, because of the style matchup. But this style matchup is weird. Lawler, I think, could beat him should he use... And he's used wrestling in the past to, you know, defeat an array of opponents. Don't don't misunderstand me. But when you get lulled into confidence about the fact that Condit is a slow starter and not choose to mix it up appropriately when you should, I wonder a little bit about that. I think that's it for me. And you say, oh, how, how could you think that Lawler might lose his title? Guys, we just passed a year where seven champions lost. Is it really so inconceivable that Lawler would lose? No, nobody is safe, man. Conor McGregor's not safe. Fabricio Verdum's not safe. Even Demetrius Johnson's not safe. Nobody is safe, man. Um, it's this is a this is a sport that will is so di- sustained dominance, consistent dominance at the top is just impossible to come by. And for me, the idea of a champion losing in MMA, I used to hold it with this like, you know, if you grew up, grew up, if you if you witnessed the era of GSP and Silva. You had the sense about guys holding the belt, retaining some permanence about that. But those were just those guys. That's not really what happens by virtue of someone attaining a certain level. And, of course, we'd seen that with other guys. You know, Rashad Evan wins it and loses it. And Forrest Griffin wins it and loses it. And there had been turnover in other weight classes as well. But I just mean those these two dominant figures, overarching figures, just showed, um, you know, the guys who get the title – it's not just merely that they got the title that proves that they can hold it forever. They just have to keep holding it forever. Like that's the task itself. And um, that, that vision of a champion was, I think really undercut by 2015. Uh, Zufa's thought process with having Silva versus Bisping on fight pass kind of answers already. We'll see what you say. Um, do you think it's a major response to the possibility that fight pass subscriptions have dropped off significantly? I know my Fight Pass subscription expired two months ago, and I had no intention of renewing it. That's a very good question. So, um, um, yeah, is the is I don't know. I, I don't know. Okay, 
I don't know if they're doing this because business is great and they want to double down. I don't know if this if this is business is bad and they want to, as you noted, um, you know, dramatically increase subscriptions. I don't really know. But what I do know is that one way or the other, there is a. It's not merely that they're picking this fight or that fight to go on Fight Pass. They have reinvested in Fight Pass as an entity in, in and of itself. They hired Eric Winter. Um, they have redone much of the branding around it. They're trying to produce all kinds of content um, for you now. I think they're trying to do like uh, from now until UFC 200. I think they're doing like a. They're taking all the various fights of the night from the last few years, and each one they're making available or featuring it. They're making a playlist out of it, so you can get a fight of the night every single day uh, up until UFC 200, like crazy things like that. So, so, um, so, so they're clearly doubling down on Fight Pass. They're trying to reinvest in it as something to be bigger than what it has been. Um, but until cable TV changes. I don't know how much they can really do with that. Um, certainly they can do more at putting Silva versus Bisping on Fight Pass and Poirier versus Duffy is a, um, you know, is a nod to that. But, um, you know, it's Fight Pass. That conversation, I think we'll figure out one way or the other. To me, it's going to be much more interesting where, so they signed up with us. How long was the, the deal? Um... So it was a seven-year deal in 2011, right? UFC and Fox. So we're, let's see, when did that, when did that start? 2012? So we're like, we're halfway into the deal. What is, what are cable, here's the point. What are cable rights fees going to look like in three or four years when the UFC is renegotiating? Because the changes from cord cutting are happening now. And the UFC likes to diversify their revenue. I think one thing they've done very smartly, they have a key component from television rights deals. They have a key component from pay-per-view still. I think pay-per-view still being the dominant amount, but not the uh, majority amount. Um... And so the question becomes, what will the value of Fight Pass be if, uh, if and when they have to renegotiate a deal for, for television cable rights and they can't get the kind of increase they had it anticipated? That will be very interesting to me. So th this also, I feel like, is connected to that. It's not merely that um, subscriptions could be down and they want to reinvest in it. It's, okay, subscriptions aren't just down. We need to look ahead at this. We need to invest in this platform in the event of three or four years when we're trying to renegotiate a deal for rights fees for our product to be put on cable television and we don't get the kind of money we're anticipating we need to have this other source of revenue that we can go to where we can control everything i mean they control everything anyway but you know what i mean they i mean they really control everything when they do it on their own platform and they can sell directly to customers without any, any middleman uh, and of course you don't have to have as many of those subscribers as you do viewers because each subscriber is paying $10 a month. But nevertheless, um, that, that to me is the interesting battle that's happening here is that, you know, when they first signed that deal, you thought, man, and when they go for their second deal, they're going to make gangbusters if they can do good ratings. And now you're getting down and you're saying to yourself, 
Well, the UFC has been a, a big value and a big boon to the Fox family of networks, but what's going to be left of that, of that industry by the time it's their chance to renew? So this is why I feel like they were very deft in not abandoning pay-per-view all the way, uh, but yet still diversifying. Um, but the bulk of their content is on free TV. And if that paradigm and that model is in trouble, Fight Pass is going to have to have a very clear and renewed and upfront um, emphasis. And I think you're beginning to see the seeds of that. Uh, let's see. Could you name a fighter that you thought would do really well but had a disappointing run in 2015? Habib Nurmagomedov, unfortunately. Now, you can say disappointing because he didn't compete. But the, the multiple injuries to me was very devastating for him. Um, he had some momentum building. There was a time there where I was like, there's no doubt he can beat Dos Anjos. Now, I don't know. Dos Anjos today looks like a very different one uh, than even just a couple of years ago. So um, we'll see. We'll see. But I was he didn't disappoint in the sense that he fought and looked bad. He didn't disappoint in the sense that he could, he could not get his training under control. Let's see. True or false? UFC 195 does under 350K buys. I think that's true. Or right around there. Overeem has a fight with Fedor in 2016 if Fedor wins tomorrow. Man. You know what? Just for fun, I'll say true. Connor will not fight in Croke Park in 2016. True. Sakuraba could pass as a zombie on The Walking Dead if he takes one more beating like that. Bro, he already looks like that. Uh, I am upset Chip Kelly was fired because that means the Eagles might actually make the playoffs next year. Come on, bro. So happy to see the Eagles as the new tire fire in the NFC East. We had our turn in D.C. Now it is yours. Congratulations, Philly. Um, how do you feel about the Croke Park situation? So, um... There's a local effort to not allow that fight to take place there. I don't really care. Uh, if you're Irish, I can understand why you might care. And I think that's a fight for the Irish to have um, with themselves and a conversation they need to have with themselves. But as an American, it is, it is, I don't have a burning need to see Conor McGregor compete there. Would be cool. Would be interesting. I would like it. But I don't have this burning has to happen kind of thing. I imagine that's a bigger priority for. Um, the Irish or UK or European audiences. Uh, economic crisis in Brazil, the Rio event canceled. Look, there's a report of Anderson Silva saying the UFC was forced to cancel uh, the March 5th event in Rio because of the economic crisis in Brazil. I wasn't even aware of Brazil having major issues in their economy. How's this look for MMA in Brazil going forward? They just had that massive UFC 190 event last summer. So if you go to The Economist today, um, Economist is one of two magazines I subscribe to. The other one is The New Yorker. The top story and the cover of The Economist this week is about Brazil. And it's actually called A Looming Disaster. Um, disaster looms for Latin America's biggest economy. Let me explain to you something. Yeah. Uh, 
Okay. On December 16th, uh, Fitch became the second of the three big credit, rating, credit raging agencies to downgrade Brazil's debt to junk status. Days later, Joaquim Levy, the finance minister appointed by the president, Dilma Rousseff, to stabilize the public finances, quit in despair after less than a year in the job. Brazil's economy is predicted to shrink by 25 to 3% in 2016, which is a huge amount. Not much less than it did in 2015. Even oil-rich, sanction-wracked Russia stands to do better. At the same time, Brazil's governing coalition has been discredited by a gargantuan bribery scandal surrounding Petrobras, a state-controlled oil company, and Ms. Rousseff, accused of hiding the size of the budget deficit, faces impeachment proceedings in Congress. Uh, they're in trouble down there in Brazil. And there's a whole lot of reasons for it. You can call it the lack of the commodities boom or the end of the commodities boom or whatever else you want to talk about, the Petrobras scandal. It's always worth paying attention to the state of the local economy in areas where UFC not just does business, but where they've put up an office. Um, I think there are still reasons for optimism in Brazil. Um, I think you can do bigger cards there with bigger stars or even maybe a smaller card with a bigger star, uh, depending on what kind of economics and financial sacrifice you want to make as the promoter. But what you're not going to be able to do is just a run of the mill card with some decent talent on it and expect to sell anything. Um, the purchasing power is going to be compromised in Brazil to a very significant extent for the foreseeable future. Um, if not this year, then in the last couple, I mean, you can't have it both ways. They both re-rode into Brazil. Was it 134? or 135, whatever it was, they both re-rode into Brazil on this wave of enthusiasm when the economy was red hot, red hot. And they hit it when the time was right, and that was good. They should have. That investment made sense. But now that the local economy there is struggling to a very, very serious degree, um, there is no way that doesn't affect the ability of sponsors to contribute, of audiences to attend, uh, any number of different ways in which there's, you know, transaction of money from promoter to fan or from fan to promoter. Uh, that's all, that's all going to be affected. So we'll see exactly what the contours of that look like, but you can see that if they, the, the thought was that if they couldn't get Belfort and Silva to fight down there in a rematch, they didn't want to have it on that date and that city or what canceled, moved, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's, it's irrelevant distinctions. Um, in either case, it just sort of shows you that unless they feel like they've got the right formula at the right time, they're going to be a little bit more hesitant than normal about pulling the trigger, which frankly, I believe is very financially prudent and the smart call. If it requires dialing back from Brazil a little bit, and by the way, not coincidentally, they've lost some of their champions as well. Um, that, that's just a necessary condition of their own existence. A lot of y'all hating on each other in these comments. Oh, people asking um, about Dana White's criticism of, uh, I guess, the site and Ariel generally. I'll, I'll just say this. Like, people are like, oh, what do you feel about them calling you clickbait? I don't know. What does my dad feel about the new three-on-three -three overtime rules in hockey? Who cares? He doesn't, like, know anything about hockey. His opinion... <laughs> Like when, when Jay Rosen says something or, um, you know, Eric Wemple out of the Washington Post, people who understand journalism, you know, they lob a critique, then I'll listen. But otherwise, you know, it, this is not an area of expertise for him. So who, 
his opinion is not one to be overly concerned about in this regard. Uh, does Brendan Schaub get the Gilbert Melendez Award for his dyed hair? I don't understand what he's doing. Is he, is he copying somebody? Someone was saying he was copying Justin Bieber. Did Justin Bieber do this? If you haven't seen it, Brendan Schaub looks normal, healthy, happy, happy for him. But he dyed his hair like a off-white, almost like a yellow. I'm not quite sure. Something like that. Um, not the best look, but it's the one I'm naturally achieving, y'all. Look at that, huh? Your boy is just, I mean, I'm doing the Brendan Schaub just slowly. I guess I can't talk too much, can I? Achievement of Overeem and Arlovsky or weakness of the heavyweight division. I think it is too extreme to give Overeem and Arlovsky all the credit for their recent success, but equally wrong to dismiss it completely because of the weakness of the division. To what extent can you attribute extent, not extend? To what extent can you contribute their comebacks to their own improvement slash skills? Um, I, I need to go back and watch. God, you know what I would love to do? I would love to watch tape with one of their coaches on what Arlovsky used to do and what he's doing now. And I can do that myself to some extent, but I'm not going to see all the things that they're going to see. And I want to, I want them to point out to me like some of the differences in his approach to the game and his approach uh, to the game, what it used to be, man, because there's got to be some differences. The success is not accidental. Um, you know, I know in the strike force cage, I was never overly impressed with his evasive movement and his ability to get cornered and trapped against big strikers like Brett Rogers or, um, Antonio Bigfoot Silva at the time, but um, it's got to be more than that. It has to be more than that. <laughs> I wish I could have talked to Brandon Gibson for like three, four hours, man, because I have so many more questions about all the things that are happening there, but alas, not to be. Jackson Wigglejohn heavyweight, same question. Uh... If Orlovsky wins this weekend and Jones moves up to heavyweight in 2016, Jackson Winklejohn will have three fighters at least in the top five of the division. Um, how do you think they match up? I think Jones beats all of them. Uh, any word on fighters getting royalties from their Reebok fight kit sales? I believe it was mentioned that they would get 20% of every t-shirt sold or something. And someone corrects it saying 20% of the commission UFC makes on the kits as my understanding as well. Um, no, no word on that. Oh, uh, shout out to Ben folks for writing an article about measuring the value that Reebok gets strictly from say, let's say a fighter on Instagram at a weigh-in, backstage at a weigh-in, they're ready to go on stage, they take their camera phone out, and they shoot themselves, and they're wearing Reebok gear, and their coaches are wearing Reebok gear, or something like that. And everyone does this over the course of training cycles and weigh-ins and, and fight week and whatever else. How much value is Reebok getting in terms of their overall exposure from all the UFC fighters doing that? And they had valued it up to this point, from the beginning of it till now, at $2.4 million alone and we're not even a year into a six-year deal so just keep that in mind when you see people getting uh, five thousand dollars for breaking their bodies 
What was the most important outside the cage story in 2015? Depends on your perspective. You could maybe say um, the antitrust lawsuit. I mean, it didn't it didn't um, capture our imagination because it's still in the very nascent stages. But we might look back on it if it has huge ramifications. We might look back on it as such. But maybe we'll save that for when that happens. Maybe it'd be a 2016 or 2017, or maybe even later than that. Um, so there's that. I think for me, man, I really, I truly believe this because I saw someone challenging me, like, "Are you going to walk back your?" Oversaturation comments, no, but I don't have to. They got rid. The roster got smaller. The number they cut the number of shows. The number of guys they allowed in the door to make their debuts was literally a fraction of what it used to be. This is what this, this is what I, everything I was asking for. Stack your cars as much as possible. Make it hard to get in here. Uh, don't do so many shows. Now you can quibble with that. I still think there should be fewer, but okay. They have a really good successful year. I mean, you can't argue too much with 600 million. But this is, like, you didn't hear me complain this much because there wasn't as much to complain about. They they made a bunch of the changes I wanted them to make. <laughs> like, thank you. Like, less guys are getting in? Good. Should be harder to get in. You did fewer shows? And then that, that enabled you to stack other shows? Good. Thank you. This is what I wanted. This is, this is what I wanted. And they got a little bit lucky with, you know, they did things for themselves, but you never know how fighters are going to perform. <clears throat> Conor McGregor doing what he did. They had a great year that way. And even with Ronda Rousey, having what happened to her, she's still, in 2015, ascended to heights. I think we couldn't even imagine before for an MMA fighter. You know, so they got a little bit of wind at their back. Um, they made some right changes. But, you know, this is another thing Brian Stan told me. He was like, and it's, it's so true. When UFC is on top and they feel like they've got it all figured out, like they did in 2013, it's just not as good of a product. It's just not. They get a little complacent. They don't get as daring. And they don't really mind their P's and Q's the way they do when they feel like they got a chip on their shoulder or something to prove or a reason to bounce back or compete. When Zufa is at its best, when it's like, you know what, we're going to show you. That's when they're much, much better. And that's what you got in 2015. Not just because, you know, I think in very early stages, Coker's kind of knocking on their door a little bit, the, you know, the, the margins. I don't think he's really brought strike force. I don't think he's really brought Bellator to where he wants it to be or where it needs to be to be, um, you know, something of, you know, consequence. But um, certainly he's making some noise out there. But more than that, you know, they lost a ton of money in 2014. It was a terrible year for them. It was a terrible because they tried, they couldn't adjust their model when they needed to, when they didn't have the product to do that kind of thing. And they made some tweaks and they made some adjustments. And again, I could still quibble that a little bit, but they did a lot of the right things and it worked. And more than that, they, they bet on themselves at UFC 189. They tried to give back to the customer when they knew people were watching. They knew people walked away. I, I didn't imagine this. People walked away from the sport in 2011 and 2012 and 2013 and 2014. This is true. This is not up for debate. The sport went like that a little bit. And what they decided in 2015 was no more. We've got these big stars. We've got these big opportunities. We're not just going to put these guys in fights. We're going to make sure that when people are watching, they don't forget they had an experience. 189 was just like that. You know what? They built a kingdom around UFC 194. Folks, they got better as promoters. 
They just did. And we can talk about all the stuff about fighter pay still being a huge problem, I believe. We can talk about the antitrust lawsuit that might undo the whole thing next year or the year after that. These are This does not uh, absolve them of all the things they do wrong. But you have to give credit. The criticisms, me and, like I'm alone in this, many others were lobbying at them in 2012 and 2013 and so on. That UFC that we were criticizing then has improved. They've gotten better. They're better at their jobs all the way down. This is a much, much, much better promoter. The fight game's getting better. Striking's getting better. The fighters are getting better. The athleticism is getting better. So are the promoters. And Belter's getting better too. I mean, they got a long way to go, and it's a smaller issue. But I don't. To me, the big lesson of 2015 was, and there's many. But to me, I cannot, you have to give them credit. They simply got better. And they didn't get better by accident. They didn't just wait for the bus to show up and then get on it. They did everything possible to create conditions of success. They made changes. And they got a little lucky here and there, too. Okay, fine. But they made changes. They wanted to put events together, but they decided, let's not put something on a Sunday Let's have the main attraction be that Saturday, but then let's build a fight pass and a free card. Let's just do everything together. Let's have let's have these moments you don't forget. That's all I ever wanted. What I was so sick of in 2013 was just this general malaise where every fight was just kind of like a little bit better, a little bit worse, a little bit better, a little bit worse. There weren't these big, swinging, huge moments. There weren't these events of consequence. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you got your fill in 2015 because they went out and tried to make it happen. They didn't just say, well, you know, well, let's just do the same old thing we've been doing. We'll show you our model works. No, let's fix the model. Let's make some tweaks to it. Let's make some adjustments to it. And it had profound consequence. The UFC is a better promoter today than they were this time a year ago. Fact. Fact. Or at least they used this year to show it anyway. That's what I've been asking. Step it up, man. You guys are so capable. Let's see it. And then when they flex on you, you see it. You see it. You feel it. So this idea that they did the exact same things in 2012 and 2013 2014, they just waited for the winds to change. Like they were on a sailboat being tossed about the ocean, and they finally got one at their back, and they could sail and, and hit land. No. No. They made changes. They made tweaks. They changed how they stack cards. They changed the number of cards. They changed who got in the door. They changed how fast they pushed out the door. They did a lot different. A lot. And these things, even these tiny little adjustments, have major, major, and importantly good consequences. You have to compliment UFC on stepping up their game. That's why a lot of these criticisms about UFC, there are plenty of them to make. Plenty. We, 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 can, we can have a whole chat about fighter pay and what a serious problem it is and how they have not handled the Vitor Belfort 152 situation at all. So many unanswered questions. And why is their executive haranguing people about their appearance on Twitter? Really? We're still doing this in 2015? This is, this, I mean, to call this nonsense would be a euphemism. There are plenty of, of criticisms you can lob at them. But 2015, when I read mainstream criticism of them, it seems grossly off the mark. You have to acknowledge this was a year of major success for them. 
not coincidental major success. Go read Mike Bond's feed on Twitter. And he's tweeting about all these facts about the length of events and everything else. Go look at the facts about who got in and who got out and how many events and what they did. None of this is an accident because they made adjustments. They made changes. Thank you. You will hear me shut up if you do those things. I don't think you guys heard me complain that much about oversaturation this year because they did things differently. Uh, fight of the year. Fight. Lawler versus McDonald, too. I mean, if, nothing else could possibly be different than that. Uh, fighter of the year. Easy call. Conor McGregor. Female fighter of the year. I don't know why we were separating that, but sure, Holly Holm. Event of the year, 189 was my event of the year. Coach and gym of the year. You've got Rafael Cordero. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because you got Dos Anjos and you got um, Verdum in there. Okay, fair enough. Silva Bisping, who takes it, already got to this one. What is your point, though? So it says, I actually think this fight could be pretty competitive. Bisping doesn't have anywhere near Silva's potential skill, but I think he's aged better than him, and his heart and fighting mentality is tremendous. On a somewhat related note, do you think Silva's refusal to admit being caught red-handed using PEDs does significant damage to his legacy? I think if he goes out there and wins and tests clean, I don't know how much damage will be to his legacy. I'll tell you this. If he goes out there and tests clean and loses, it's bad. If he goes out there and loses and gets stopped and tests uh, positive again, uh, you might see some tremendous damage to his 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 uh, you know resume legacy. Wouldn't that be crazy if once Usada comes along, he just you know I mean he was going downhill before. I mean the guy's you know what how old is someone? He's like in his forties now or late thirties. His actual age. It's forty. I mean, you know, the fact that he's still competing at all is kind of miraculous. So, uh, yeah, you know what's interesting to me is I, I like Bisping's style to overwhelm him a little bit. But then I like, you know, uh, Silva to catch him in, in these moments that Bisping doesn't expect and then which one is going to win out. You know, you can make an argument, well, if Talos Laites could catch him, uh, couldn't win, but made a pretty strong account of himself. Silva should have no problem, but I see Silva being very reserved about using his energy. Um, Bisping can go the full three at a full throttle pace. Or no, excuse me, the full five, even then, at a full throttle pace for the most part. The um, longer that one goes, more favors Bisping. We'll see. Luke, can you give your thoughts on the Aoki Sakuraba fight? God, that fight was gross. This person says, this whole affair made me feel physically sick. Why is Aoki, not, who is not only an eight-fight win streak, but with the current one lightweight champ being booked to fight someone like Sakuraba? It is questionable that Sakuraba should even be fighting at all, but pitting him against this kind of opponent is a terrible mismatch. To make matters worse, the stoppage was way too late and came only because his corner threw in the towel. Oh, this fight, this fight was gross. Um... Oh, Jesus, what do you even say about this? There's, there is uh, plenty of evidence, even with what we know. And what we know is, is frankly, I am sure, 
minimal compared to what's actually there medically, there is ample evidence to suggest that he has untold amounts of damage, both internally and externally. Um, we already know that there's been some, uh, um, you know, uh, what do you want to call it, um, peripheral brain damage related to getting blood to the brain from the brain stem. You know, then you add in, you know, broken bones and torn ligaments and ears being ripped off and scar tissue on his forehead. Um, that he's that he's out there at all is a travesty. Um, it makes me sick to my stomach. The guy's taking an outrageous beating, and I guess they thought if you put him against Alki, who would have ordinarily a size issue to grapple with in terms of dealing with Sakuraba, that would even the stakes, and that just shows you how how far gone Sakuraba, Sakuraba should never fight again. Never. Absolutely never. You can't even beat a diminished Alki. And everyone's like, oh, eight fight win streak, one lightweight champ. This is not the same Alki from a few years ago. He's not his place in the sport anyway. I don't think he was ever the same after the Gilbert Melendez fight, quite frankly. Um, it's, it's, it's abhorrent. It's reprehensible. Um, I will say that the rest of the Ryzen promotion, Risen, whatever, has been relatively good, fun, a, a, a unique return to the days of yore. But if they have any conscience, they'll never book Sakuraba again. And I don't ever want to see Spike or Bellator being a part of that, sanctioning that in any way. Uh, I mean, they have to an extent because they're going to have Fedor on and they've contributed Mo and Brennan Ward. So in some sense, they already have. But but I mean more than that, like... If, if I ever see Sakuraba on Spike TV, we're going to have a problem, right? Um, again, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, oh, well, okay, I mean, if he's the ambassador at a Bellator show, that's, you know, that's, that's great. But, I mean, I mean fighting, of course. That is absolutely sickening what they did, and it's gross that he keeps putting himself through it. Um, it's, 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 it's in some ways so representative of the decay of what has happened to Japanese MMA. It's both a return to Japanese MMA and some of these savage fights and showcase fights that we put on. And in another, in another way, it's representative of the, the decay that's happened over the last um, six or seven years. Um, you know, Sakuraba, I mean, he, he couldn't even muster, you know, they, they would have been, a, I mean, Sakuraba is turning into fire Harada. It's, it's, it, he deserves better. The Japanese deserve better. The Japanese should treat him better. And then promoters should treat him better. You know, when, when Sakuraba is putting up less of a fight uh, than Fire Harada, you've got, a, you've got, uh, you are so far gone that you are ir irredeemable at that point. Um, and that's what Aoki Sakuraba was. It was just irredeemably bad, irredeemably pathetic, irredeemably um, dangerous, uh, irredeemably, uh, frankly, unethical. This is an unethical fight, right? I mean, because if you have an athletic commission that's saying, no, you can't fight, um, I don't suspect that Sakuraba would be able to get a license. And, um, you know, say what you want about Shamrock versus Gracie fighting in Texas. That's still better than this. That's, that's better than this by miles. I mean, Sakuraba walking in there, like literally taped together because his knees can barely bend. He gets mounted and can't buck or turn to a side hardly at all. 
you know, who knows how many torn rotator cuffs he's had and if he needs a hip replacement and bulging discs. And he just, he just looks like an old beat up man. Uh, it was like, it was like watching a, a 18 year old beat up his, his dad or something. It was just, it was gross, man. And I really hope we see nothing like that ever again. Uh, it'll be, it'll be too soon if we ever do. Year-end awards. Luke, should the knockout of the year be based on brutality or the bigger story? Um, it, it should encompass both unless one is so outrageously bigger than the other. I've seen some giving it to home for a KO of Rousey or Connor for his KO of Aldo. Don't get me wrong, those were sweet knockouts, but Thomas Almeida folded Anthony B. Don't know how to spell his last name. Uh, backwards like a broken lawn chair. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, uh, a solid knockout in an otherwise unspectacular context is not enough for me. Uh, if you want to give it to Connor for his KO, I think it's fine for me. It's home versus Rousey. Um, I just feel like what, what Rousey was able, or excuse me, what Holm was able to do was not just an evidence of a uh, tremendous display of skill, a, a particular application of a game plan, um, a indictment of a media narrative that had surrounded and, and this hagiography that had sounded uh, surrounded Ronda Rousey. And then this, uh, what I really liked about the Rousey KO was um, that you saw a version of female brutality that maybe some people didn't know, casual fans, didn't know existed, that these women, they can shut each other's lights out with, with a remarkable degree of savagery. And, you know, precision technique, right? It's a little bit, it's, it's, it's both. But I just mean, you know, you take someone and do the force of the human body, train them to throw their limbs at each other in these, um, you know, specific and unique ways that are difficult to learn. And you can get something relatively spectacular doing that. Uh, and people had seen that from the men's side of the game. I don't think they had seen enough of it for the casual audiences that the women. I mean, it's the first time, you know, how many titles have been won in women by head kick KOs? I think a couple of hook and shoot titles may have been won that way, but, you know, and they're rare in the men's side too, of course, but not as such. You don't think about it in that way. I think a lot of people were like, damn, you know, because people would always talk about, oh, Rousey's so great. I mean, yeah, she knocked out Betch Cohea, but they like the fact that they, she uses her body to break limbs and stuff. And it's this interesting sort of like, um, I, I, don't, I don't know how to say it exactly, that, that, that they felt like, there was a genius in that she could uh, maximize her body uh, for defeat and that this could, you know, help her beat men and whatever else. And those narratives took, took too far, but it's just nice to go forget about, you know, we think she's weak. So it's interesting that she can use her whole body for maximum effect. Here's someone who's a woman head kick KOing the other one into oblivion. Um, just to let you know what time it is when these when these ladies glove up. So I, I, I kind of like that too. Uh, head trauma. Now that some of the originals are approaching their 40s and 50s, I wonder if any of them are suffering symptoms of a degenerative brain disease. I'm sure we're going to find out, and I hope we do. True or false? A good wrestler with a good chin would beat McGregor. False. I mean, maybe true, but probably false. Out of Edgar Diaz and Dos Anjos, Dos Anjos would be the toughest fight for McGregor. That's my view, but who knows? McGregor would outbox Diaz. Outstrike, maybe. I don't know if he'd outbox. Uh, Frankie Edgar has a better chin than Nate Diaz. 
It's pretty competitive. I'll say shh, true. Dos Anjos is the most well-rounded fighter in the UFC. Boy, he's up there, huh? He is up there. I don't know if he is, but the jiu-jitsu, solid. The wrestling, pretty damn solid. And the striking, dude. Dos Anjos, you know what's interesting about Dos Anjos? He, I don't know how he throws the heaviest punch. That was a good punch, obviously. Great punch. Boy, his kicking game is... <laughs> Whoa. It is outrageous. He has got some steam on those jokers, boy. Those things, they land and they let you know right away. When Dos Anjos strikes, man, he is, he is playing for keeps. Um... There ain't no middle ground with that with that dude. He's he's coming to light you on fire. Right away. Arson. Right away. That's crazy, man. There's no foreplay with him. All right. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. When's the beat coming back? Uh, maybe next week. I have to, I have to talk to, um, the crew, Ariel in the studio, but I, th I think next week. Do you think there is a value in researching HGA, HGH use for athletes for therapeutic purposes? Yes. By merit, in your opinion, does Yoel Romero deserve the next shot at the middleweight belt? It's a tough call given all the things he's done wrong, but I will say yes. Uh, thoughts on Chico Camus and Souza getting cut, and how do you feel about Souza finding out about it on uh, from USADA? Well, I feel bad about that. And Camus had some success in the UFC. I think he's obviously a high-level fighter, but I'm going to be honest, guys. Here is my view about it. It's very much like the NFL. If you make it to the NFL, you deserve to get paid. You deserve to get paid very handsomely. Even if you're just on the practice squad or, you know, the number two quarterback. Even A.J. McCarron uh, deserves to get paid, right? But it, you should be able to make it there. If you can't make it, you can't win it in a sustained way. And I know they're going to be letting some guys go for promotional reasons because they're not big names. And they're going to be signing others because they are big names. So this is obviously going to be an argument where you're going to have to allow some fudge room uh, as a consequence. But what I am trying to tell you is, I am much. There used to be this argument floating around, being like, "Look how many guys UFC has signed. They're giving an opportunity to all these guys." That's not what the, this is. Not Make a Wish Foundation, man. That to me is the most bankrupt argument. It means nothing to me. Boy, look how nice that Major League Baseball is signing all these guys who, who can't play at this level. Isn't that sweet of them? I am so glad Dan Snyder and the Skins signed a bunch of tight ends that are worse than Jordan Reed. Let's play them and give them money because we're just, you know, we're giving them an opportunity, man. We're, we're really taking care of them. This is, uh, no, Jordan Reed should get paid because Jordan Reed's good, really good. That's how I think this should work. It should be very tough to get into the UFC. It should be very tough to stay in the UFC. And there might be some tough calls where guys like Kevin Souza, who did just fine based on what he was asked, but was otherwise basically unremarkable. I mean, let's look at his wins. I was looking at them yesterday. Here we go. He's 31, first of all. 
these were his wins. He beat Felipe Aranches, who I think is good, but is now better than him, back in 2013 via split decision. He beat Mark Adiva, who is not good. He beat Katsunori Kakuno, who is not good. And then he lost to Chaz Skelly, who is pretty good. Um, and he got submitted by Chaz. I mean, this is not a – he was fishing off of guys who deserved to, ne- to not be there in the first place, with the exception of Aranches, which he won by via split decision. And, you know, the Adiva fight was fight of the night and the Kakuna fight was performed tonight. That's great, man. But these are not – this is the low end of things. So, you know, I feel bad for him because he did better than most. But this is not, like, some hugely impressive resume. It's just not. And uh, Camus, you know, had a – you know, he never fought losers and never looked like one. He fought tough guys and always fought pretty well. He's obviously a very, very talented fighter. Maybe he'll be back soon enough. I hope so. But – I am much more in favor of a smaller UFC where guys are better compensated than I am of a bigger UFC um, where we have this argument floating around where, gee, isn't it so great we have all these guys on roster that we're taking care of? No, I don't want this to be a charity. I want this to be a cutthroat meritocracy to the extent possible, understanding that there will be some, you know, some guys will get preferential treatment and some won't. Nothing I can say about that. You know, generally speaking, I want this to be a super, super. This should be like getting into MIT. It's you know, maybe you're maybe a couple guys get in because their dads donated a million dollars to the school and are rich and famous, but the rest of you jokers, you better have some 4.0s and 1600s, man. That's the way it better be. Uh, the decision to put Duffy versus Poirier on the fight path. Oh, I didn't finish Twitter. Sorry, hang on. Luke, if you see, if the UFC sit, what? I don't know what that, that's not English. What was your personal favorite interview article that you wrote this year? Um, if not the Brandon Gibson one, then maybe the Dominic Cruz, Dominic Cruz one, I keep saying Dominique. The Dominic Cruz one on footwork. I think that was from this year, was it not? Let's see. Oh, that was 2014. Jeez, I don't know. So I guess the Brandon Gibson one. Uh, favorite video I did was, um, if not these live chats, the response. I did, Remember I did a few of these response videos? One when Johnny uh, Hendricks cutting weight. One on John Jones getting um, whatever happened to him. Uh, and then one on Nick Diaz when he got suspended for five years. <laughs> I mean, it's just I can't even say that without laughing at how outrageous that is. But okay. Um, Anything else from Twitter? True or false? Connor has more fights at lightweight than featherweight at when his UFC career is over. That's probably true. Someone goes, Jordan Reed is a really good tight end. That's a stretch. No, it's not. Look at his numbers. Considering how games he was out, look at how many receptions he had. Yeah, he's a, as a pass-catching tight end, he's one of the best in the league. That's not for debate. And yeah, all right, he's got some holding penalties, but you iron, he'll iron those out. You watch. You watch. I guarantee you within the next two years, Jordan Reed makes the Pro Bowl. Bet me. Who would you pick in these matchups? Pettis versus Barboza. I need to see Pettis back, but maybe Pettis. Almeida versus Sterling. Again, I'll pick Almeida right now. Rockhold versus Gustafson. Jesus. That's a tough one. I might even pick Rockwell, too.
Okay. The decision to put uh, Duffy versus Poirier on the fight pass prelims seems very confusing considering the success of Connor could filter down to Duffy in the U.S. market. He was giving a platform like Fox to see his fight. It seems like a missed opportunity to really capitalize on the star. So if you think about it, that was supposed to be on Fight Pass to begin with because it was supposed to be in Europe. And the public rationale that the UFC used was, this is a, a thank you to our Fight Pass customers. So to me, there seems like there's more evidence that they're trying to really bump up Fight Pass and give you some bang for your buck there than the idea that Fight Pass is going so great they just don't give an F. Again, Zufo reacts better when they've got a chip on their shoulder. <laughs> when they got something to prove, when they've got some things to do. And um, so it seems like the more logical, logical conclusion that they want people to really buy Fight Pass. If it's just Fight Pass is going to be what Facebook was, then no one needs to buy it. But if they want to really make it something, then you got to make it something. Barn Cat. Uh, I haven't heard you break down his win recently, so I want to get your thoughts on Tam McCrory's return. How far do you see him going to the division? Well, he certainly filled out in ways that I uh, hadn't anticipated. Uh, Tandem Recruit was one of my first interviews many, many moons ago um, when I began to get into MMA. My first one ever was Mike Brown, but Tandem Recruit was not too far after that. Um, yeah, I don't really know how far he can go. He's got a ton of skill. I think he's got, he's really offensive no matter what he's doing. If he's striking, he's offensive. If he's on top on the ground, he's offensive. If he's off his back, he's offensive. If he's in transition, he's always trying to score. I really admire him about that, or I, I admire that about him, I should say. Um, there's a lot to like about Tandem McCrory. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know how far I see him going. I want to sort of take it fight by fight, but I think the major takeaway I have is that he's cleared up some of the range issues he had before. He's physically able to use the style he likes about getting in there and scrapping a little bit uh, and, you know, mixing it up in the clinch or even on the ground. He's got a little bit more size to give that a little bit uh, more um, push and, um, you know, make his opponents react to that weight a little bit more. Um, how far I can go, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, of all the UFC champions at the end of 2014, only Demetrius Johnson and Robbie Lawler remained champions at the end of 2015. In addition, many of those champions at the end of 2014 were considered utterly dominant long-term champions within their weight classes. In your view, has this been one of the most turbulent years in the UFC weight divisions in its history? Yeah, absolutely. Again, if you are accustomed to the years where Silva and GSP just kind of cruised on through, and remember at the tail end of that, um, John Jones started coming up. So you got this feeling like, oh, oh, I see how it works. The guy who gets the title, not every time, but mostly it's just the guy who's going to hold it. Same with Cain Velasquez. You probably thought Cain Velasquez would never lose. Oops. Right? Now, I'm not sure people thought that about Frankie Edgar necessarily, but for a time they thought about it for BJ Penn and Lightweight. Uh, Anderson and his denials. Anderson Silva is still claiming he hasn't cheated and it's all a mistake. Do you have a substantial opinion on this? No, I do not have a substantial opinion on this. Uh, and if you were advising Silva, what would you suggest that he might regain some of the trust he has lost from the fans? Should he admit or continue to deny? I don't think he cares that much. I think he's got enough fans. I think he thinks if he holds on to this long enough, um, people will believe it either because it's true or because they'll think it's true. If he wins again, a lot of this might go away. 
uh, I don't get all up in arms about steroid use in the way some other guys do. But, um, yeah, I don't think this is like A-Rod. I think if he gets a couple of more wins, people will be like, remember what happened before? Weidman loses, and the first questions I get are, does this mean Silva's a contender? No. Silva has to win to be a contender. But uh, that just sort of underscores the kind of fan sympathies that he pulls together, right? If Fedor looks like time has been rewinded and somehow seems like the killer of old, which he won't, even if he beats Singh in some kind of remarkable way, like, th there's no going back. He looked like, Fedor looked like crap at the end of his run in what, 2011? You think, like, four years off, he's going to come back and look like Popeye busting open a can of spinach? Nah, not going to happen, friend. He might beat saying, okay, great, that means nothing. It means nothing. This is the weird part to me about, like, oh, I want to see how we do against Cain Velasquez. Why? Maybe he wins, right? Maybe. Maybe he scores some arm bar from the guard or something. But generally speaking, eventually that whatever miracle he might be able to pull off, that was going to be the end of it. The guy has not looked like himself in a very, very long time. And I was wrong about Arlovsky. Okay. But Arlovsky made some changes. What changes has Fedor made? I mean, he's not training with the exact same people. He's not, like, he's, he's not training with like cutting-edge teams and cutting-edge techniques. Nah, just getting back in the gym, you know, breaking a sweat, sitting in the sauna for 30 minutes. Not the same thing. Do you think if he wins, we'll see renewed questions such as, Fedor, should he fight Verdun in the UFC? 100%. Fans, like, view fighters coming out of retirement like Guns N' Roses announcing they're going to have a reunion tour. First of all, have you seen – I saw the uh, – the, uh, Guns N' Roses version that Axel was floating out a couple of years ago here at the uh, Fillmore in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, it was cool. He did a good job, but he can't sing for very long. So there'd be these long guitar-playing interludes where he would go, take a break, and then come back with a different outfit on. The guy's like Mariah Carey now. And he would, he, you know, to his credit, he would bang out the hits. He didn't come on until like midnight. The, the concert wasn't over until 3 in the morning. This was like a Wednesday. I wanted to kill him. I was like, dude, what are you doing, you clown of a human being? Um, but even then, it's, they're still playing the hits. Still sounds pretty good. This is not Fedor is not going to come out and like you know hit the kick drum and start playing the old tunes again. Uh, let's line up Nogueira and Fedor. Let's get that old magic back, huh? It's just it's the, the the magic takes place at a moment in time, and once it is passed, it is very rarely ever recaptured. And uh, again, Arlovsky at least made some changes. Fedor's done nothing, you know, to change what was happening before. Not any kind of significant degree, and uh, and everyone wants him to, you know, to be something he's not. Why didn't he fight Kane? If would you want to fight Kane if you're Fedor? You're you know kicking forties door down, and you can get paid a bunch of money to fight a guy who probably doesn't even know how to pass someone's guard. Well, I mean. The movement craze. Lots of new fans think that Connor is the creator and innovator of the movement thingy. Of the movement thingy. That's a word. Talk about the early innovators of this kind of stuff and how you think this will impact the sport. Well, it's not a craze. I mean, there's been lots of guys who are into movements, and uh, Connor is neither the creator nor the innovator of that in any capacity. What he is, what he has been, is the vocalizer of it. Um, the guy who has made the ideas about it more palatable. 
he has talked about it and put it at the forefront of some of the things he has done to differentiate himself from the rest of the division as a point of smack talk. That's how I got everyone's attention. If he had talked about it only in interviews um, as a side note or something, I don't know how much we'd even credit him for it. But remember, he uses it as part of the larger arsenal to lob insults at his contemporaries. And so that's why I think people have picked up on it in the way that they have. But he's hardly the first. We've noted before, George St. Pierre doing some of the gymnastic stuff. You can make an argument that Hickson Gracie was doing some movement training long before anybody else. Um, and there are many others as well. Carlos Condit was using it long before Conor McGregor had made it popular. Um, to an extent, uh, you even see uh, Michael Venom Page doing it as well. And many others too. And you're going to see more of it. But it's not so much movement like this, like, you know, uh, interpretive dancing. What I mean movement, what you're going to see movement is I think the boxing style movement, not people moving like boxers. I don't mean that, but again, remember those ropes I talked about where you can see it and the boxers bob and weave under it the whole time and do all kinds of drills, that kind of movement, moving on your feet, balancing, um, you know, just having these, creating the conditions necessary to get in range when you want to punch, to get out of range when you don't want to be punched, to cut angles when you need to, to duck, bob, weave, shift, and just time everything perfectly. That's the kind of movement I think you're going to see. You're going to see a lot more of that. The dancing of it. Not the interpretive dancing, the, you know, the Edel Portal stuff. And there will be some of that too, of course. Um, but it's, it's the larger picture. Okay, so we have to go. So let me just say this before we go. I want to thank everyone, even the haters and the people who can't stand my stupid face. I don't even blame you, really. Thank you so much for watching this past year. Um, this podcast has gotten a lot better this past year, I feel like. It's gotten a little bit of technological upgrades, huh? Getting there slowly but surely. Um, I want to thank you guys for helping me push this along and being a part of this. This podcast is maybe the most favorite thing that I do on the site in, in my career, even maybe. It's getting up there. So I just want to say thank you so much. Um, what a ride it's been. We'll be back next week for 2016. There's no breaks on this. I want you to notice that. Uh, I had to keep it going. But seriously, guys, you guys make this unbelievably rewarding to do. It, it helps me as an analyst. Um, you guys seem to enjoy it for the most part. Uh, and there's some good things that get discussed on here. So um, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. This is truly, truly fun to do. I, I look forward to it every Wednesday. And uh, now I'm going to go eat some food because I am hungry. Be safe on New Year's Eve. Don't drink and drive. It's the dumbest thing you can do. Take a cab, stay at someone's house, sleep on a couch, and then just get up and have a horrible hangover. Better to have a hangover than something terrible to happen. Because a hangover is not terrible. A hangover just feels terrible. Big difference. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I will see you literally next year. Ha, ha, ha. Follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. You can email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. I appreciate everyone watching. Until next time, or until next year, stay frosty.